Well, good morning and happy Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, can we have a little bit of fun before we get into the sermon? Can we make some predictions as to who's going to win the game? First of all, how many Baltimore Ravens fans are here in the house? All right, you guys are always uncivilized and loud. Go do something responsible and constructive with your lives. How many 49ers fans do we have here? All right. And the rest of you don't care. I, I get it. My prediction is, on paper, the 49ers are clearly the better team. They have all of the talent. Uh, they are superior. I think seven times out of ten, the team with the most talent will win the game. The Baltimore Ravens are all heart right now. They're a bunch of older guys, uh, and they have really had to climb an uphill mountain to get to this place. And I believe they believe, I believe they believe, they believe in themselves more than anybody believes in them. Um, and the thing about football, it's actually just a 60-minute game. Uh, and so for 60 minutes, if they can believe in themselves and really will themselves to, to play with all their heart, I believe they have a chance, even though the 49ers are the more talented team. So my bold prediction... Okay, is, remember I am your pastor, I speak on behalf of the Lord, if you want to lay down some bets, do it now, about what, I think it, the score, the final score will be 27-24 Baltimore Ravens, as difficult as it is for me to say that, anyway, some of you have just checked out, you're not going to listen to anything else I have to say. Uh, as Hojin mentioned, uh, the staff and leaders, uh, we just got back from a retreat. Uh, we were there since Thursday night, and uh, we had a great time. We want to thank those of you who uh, committed to praying for us while we were there. Uh, we, uh, we prayed a lot. Uh, we prayed for you. We prayed for our church. We prayed for each other. We played a lot. We played a lot of fun games and, and really got to know each other. Uh, we laughed uh, a whole lot. We cried a lot as well, and it was just a really rich time. And uh, I really felt the presence of God just drawing us together and giving us a greater heart to continue loving and serving and guiding this community together. And so this is a, a team thing, and uh, hopefully over the next uh, couple of months, uh, we'll be able to have more and more conversations that leak out of this retreat with you and uh, even share some of this from the pulpit and, and, and upcoming town halls that we have planned. And, and just to kind of share with you how we discern God has been moving uh, in our church and, and how he's going to be leading us as well. And so thank you for your prayers. Let's continue to lift up this church as one of many, many, many churches here in greater Boston and around the world for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. We're going to now continue with the Gospel of Mark. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 7. We're going to read from verse 1 to 23. And this is a longer unit. In fact, it's the longest self-contained unit in the entire Gospel Mark is a short gospel. It's only 16 chapters long. Mark is a man of few words. But in this particular passage, he goes on for 23 verses around one theme, which means Mark wants to make a point, And he doesn't want us to miss it. And I don't want you to miss it because this is so important. It speaks to the deepest need of humanity for all of us, for you and me. And so let's enter into this together. Let's read this in Mark 7, beginning in uh, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders, lest they catch the flu. Then they come from the marketplace, 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And oftentimes they'll wash their whole bodies. Uh, And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles and on and on and on. So, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites. As it is written in Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And Jesus said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For example, when Moses said, Honor your father and your mother in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 21, and when he wrote, Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death in Exodus 21, you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is now korban. That is a gift devoted to God. Korban was a gift. It was like, this money I devote to God and it belongs to God alone. I can no longer give it to my parents. Anyways, you, you, you take uh, Korban and then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God, which says honor your mother and your father by your tradition that says, well, you can actually give something to God and not give it to your parents. And so you have handed this down upon your people. And you do many things, many things like that. Sorry, I'm adding a bunch of editorial remarks, by the way. You're like, what version is he reading? <laughs> it's like, I need to get new glasses. I don't see that there. But I'm just sort of, you know, filling in some, 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 some commentary here. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing Outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he left the crowd and entered into the house, his disciples asked him about this this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? If you ever come to me and ask me for for advice and I say you're dull, I'm getting this from the scriptures. Are you so dull? Do you not get this? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body into the toilet. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand what Mark is writing here for our own good, 
for our own benefit. May we not be so dull as the disciples. But in this time, as we've gathered together, together to read and study your, study your word, Lord God, would you illuminate our minds? Would you shine your gracious, marvelous light upon our hearts that we might see and understand and hear the truth of your word? And Lord, may it not leave us the same way we came here into this place. May it have its way with us. May it change us and transform us from the inside out, Lord God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Wow. Okay, so this is a long passage here, and there's a lot of things going on, but at the core, at the essence of what's happening in these 23 verses is an argument, a dispute over what it means to be clean and what it means to be unclean or or dirty or impure or defiled. Now, the Pharisees now and, and the scribes and the religious leaders have... Uh, not only the local ones, but the contingency that have been sent from Jerusalem. See, Jesus is making headlines now. So Jerusalem wants to investigate what this rabbi, what this carpenter is doing. And so they send people to check out Jesus. And as they follow him and watch him and study him, they notice that one day he and his disciples sit down around the table to eat food and they forget to pray. No, they probably pray, thank you, Lord, for this food. But what they really did, which was a huge no-no, was they did not wash their hands. Now, those of you who do not wash your hands, that's gross. Wash your hands. Your hands are dirty. But that's not what the Pharisees are talking. They're not talking about, it's not a matter of hygiene to them. They didn't carry around bottles of Purell and constantly wash their hands. For them, it was a matter of being outwardly clean as a reflection of your inner purity. You see, the Jews believed that if they were to follow all of these traditions and obey the law to a T then not only externally would they appear to be clean, but it would be a reflection of their heart as well. So where did they get all these rules and laws? Well, in the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, you have what's called the Torah, the books of Moses. Torah is the Hebrew word for law. This is the law that the people of God live by, and in the law there were 613 commands. These were commands that God had given to Moses to give to his people to set them apart from the rest of the world. You are to live this way, eat this way, dress this way, raise your children this way, kill your animals this way, raise your animals this way, go to school this way, worship me this way, sacrifice this way, settle disputes this way. There were 613 different ways that God's people could set themselves apart from the rest of the world, essentially. Now, the law tells us what to do but it doesn't necessarily tell us how to do it. So this is where the rabbis came in, and they would share their opinion of how you were to eat your food and cook it and wash your dishes and raise your children and settle affairs and pay back debts. And all these rabbis would come and they would share their opinions and they would write them down and they collected all of these writings in a book called the Talmud. And the Talmud would sort of it would act like a fence around the law to protect the law. We know what the law says, but to do it right, we need some guidelines around the law to tell us how we are to live. Because what's the point of having the law if we don't know how to handle it? So we will give you a, a bunch of written statements and decrees that tell you how you obey the 613 commands. But the problem is there were many rabbis 
And they all had different opinions and, and interpretations of what it meant to, to work or not work on the Sabbath. Were you allowed to help your donkey out of a pit if it fell down in the Sabbath? Well, that would be work, so you let it die. But one rabbi would say, well, you know, what's the lesser of two evils? You know, is it death or is it breaking the Sabbath? Well, I think it's death, so I'm going to go in and get my donkey out of the pit. And, you know, and so there would be all these different rules and regulations. And if you took all of the writings of the Talmud that were written to explain how the Torah worked, there would be in a book that's 6,000 pages thick. If you take your entire Bible from Genesis and Revelations in English, it's about 1,000 pages thick. But the Talmud was an explanation, not over the whole Bible, but the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and that was 6,000 pages. That's how many suggestions there were in how to carry out the law. And each rabbi's interpretation of how you carried out the law was considered their yoke. And if you were, if you were that rabbi's student or pupil or disciple, you would put on that rabbi's yoke. You would uh, interpret the law and follow the law the way that rabbi taught it. And you would bear that burden. And there was once a rabbi that came and said, My yoke is light and easy. Do you know who that was? Hold that thought. All of these rabbis collected a heavy yoke of burden and and responsibility. This is how you do it. We know what it says, but this is how it's done. And so they created the Talmud and the Mishnah and all of these rules and regulations to surround like a fence the law so that we could perfectly uphold the law. Well, anyways, these people who are writing the Talmud and, and are experts in it now come to Jesus and say, well, your disciples didn't wash their hands. And if they did, the way they wash it, they're supposed to wash it three times in cold water, three times in hot water, two times in cold water, two times in hot water, blow dry, and then lotion, smell if it's too strong, three times in hot water, three times in cold water, two times in hot water, two times in cold water, blow dry, lotion, and if it's the right scent, then they could eat. I just made that up, Okay. I'm just showing you how ridiculous it was, literally. Like they had specific ways that you washed your clothes. A specific way that you would settle an argument with your neighbor. Not one way, but about 50 different ways. That, you know, well, if this neighbor, and if it was Monday, and he came and, and, and brought it to you after lunch... Well, then this is how you did it. But if he came to you in the morning between brunch and your morning walk, well, then you would do it this way. Literally, there were 6,000 pages. I mean, the yoke of the law was heavy. And so they're bringing their tradition to Jesus, and they're saying, why don't your disciples follow tradition? And Jesus just stone-cold rebukes them. You, You put tradition ahead of the word of God? Isaiah talked about you. He said you would do this. He said that you would honor me with your lips, but your hearts would be cold and far. In other words, you would talk a good talk. This is how you do it. But you would walk a poor walk. And Jesus rebukes them on the spot. I just set the table. This is what goes on. Again, Jesus calls out to the crowd and says to to, to them, he says, listen to me, everyone. You've got to get this. Understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean. You can eat shrimp, you can eat pork, you can eat scallop, 
You can eat medium rare steak and none of this will make you unclean by going into you. Rather, it's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. After he left the crowd and entered into the house, his disciples were like, can you explain? Jesus, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. It just passes through. All foods are clean. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. You see, for a thousand years, for thousands of years, the Jews believed that it was what they touched, it was what they did, it was what they came in contact with that would defile them and make them unclean. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not anymore. What makes you unclean is not what's out here in the world that you touch or engage in. What makes you unclean is what comes out of your heart. What comes out of your heart. For from within, out of men's hearts, in case you're not sure what comes out of my heart, not just poetry and Valentine's wishes and kisses, but what comes out of my heart are 13 things. Evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery. You get the point, right? Jesus is very clear. He says, you know what? Your uncleanness comes from within you. And you know what it is? It's all of these things. These evils come from inside and make a man unclean. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're not unclean because you touch something dirty. You're unclean because your heart is defiled and depraved. You were, in, basically, in other words, you're born unclean. It's not like you are born into this world and you're a baby and you're innocent and you're pure and you're naive and you grow up and then you smoke a cigarette and now you're dirty. No, before you do anything wrong, before you touch anything dirty, you're already dirty because your heart is filled with defilement. Let's just call it what it is. It's sinful. Your heart is sinful. Jesus is just saying, you know what? Your sin is not because what you're, it's, it, you're born that way. You're sinful. And people hate to hear that, particularly in our postmodern world today. People believe that humanity is generally good. We're good. We're not sinful. Don't tell me that. That's an absolute statement. That's an absolute truth that I will not accept. We're all good. We all go to heaven. We all go in our own way. Don't call me evil. Don't call me bad. But look around the world, friends. Does the world look good to you? Does the world look safe for your children? Does the world look safe for colored people in prejudiced places of this world? Does the world look safe in the Middle East? In North Korea? In public schools in Connecticut? Don't tell me the heart is good. Don't tell me we're born good and that if we're good enough, we'll go to heaven. Our actions speak for themselves. We aren't good. And Jesus is saying just that. It's out of your heart that these things come. Don't try to socialize it and psychologize it. Oh, your mama didn't hug you enough. You didn't go to the right school. You grew up in a tough neighborhood. That's why you grew up in it. No, no. It's out of our hearts. We're born this way. We're depraved. And that's bad news. A couple chapters later, in Mark 9, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to go to heaven, which is one, 
instead of two hands than to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into heaven crippled than to have two feet and go to hell, right? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God one eye than go to two eyes and go to hell. Wow, that's, that's pretty harsh. Uh, Jesus is uh, trying to make a point. He's saying if you do something with this hand that causes you to sin, cut it off. Because uh, it's better to go to heaven with one hand than to go to hell with two hands. Or two feet or one feet. Or, and only if it were that simple. If we could deal with sin, if I could just cut off my hand, okay, no more sinning. Oh, now my eyes cause me to sin. Poop! No more sinning. I, I'm not going to see and look at anything anymore that's going to defile my heart. No more sin. I'm going to go to the wrong place, but I can't really find it because I can't see anymore. Or maybe I can. I, I keep finding myself in the bar and alcoholic and drunk, so I'm going to cut off my legs so I can't go there anymore. No more alcohol. If it were that easy, as drastic as it sounds, it would be a solution, wouldn't it? It would be a solution. Just take guns away from people and they'll stop killing each other, right? Right? Just make uh, alcohol illegal. Just uh, start a prohibition and people will stop getting drunk and having parties all night long. Or, or marijuana or whatever. You, you can set up all these rules to eliminate the sin, but it doesn't eliminate the sin. Well, Jesus says in Mark 7, it's not your hand or your feet or your eyes really. What causes your hand to sin, what causes your eyes to sin, what causes your feet and your legs to sin is your heart. But Jesus doesn't say cut out your heart because you can't or you'll die. So how do we address our sinful hearts? If my hand causes me to sin, I just cut it off. It's done. Forgotten. Okay, I won't do that again. I learned my lesson. But if that sin keeps coming from my heart, how do I deal with my sin? How come I can't stop this habitual sin in my life that I've been struggling with for the last 12 years? How come I'm still so resentful and hate certain people for what they've done for me? And I know God doesn't like it that way, but from my heart, there's this anger against certain people every time I see them and do something. Why am I so selfish and greedy with my money? I know the Bible says be generous and I know I should help the poor, but I can't, I gotta keep buying things for myself and keeping it to myself. How do you address the heart when that's the way we continue to live? Well, what do we do? What have we done? What do we do? We do exactly what they did. We go to external solutions and measures. Some people go to religion. If I go to church every week, if I stop drinking and smoking, if I stop going to clubs, if I read the Bible every day and pray for 30 minutes, God will love me. That's the solution. If I pray hard enough, if I pray long enough, if I read the Bible once a year and understand it and study it and apply it and memorize it and live by it, then God will love me because then I will be good. So we turn to religion. And people who don't go, uh, who aren't religious, uh, well, you know, they're impure, they're defiled. What are they doing here? Get out of here. You don't belong here. And so we separate them like the Pharisees and the scribes separated themselves from Jesus. But the problem with religion, it might make you do good things or behave better. But for all of you who have turned to religion to be accepted by God, you know deep down in your heart, at the end of the day, you, you don't know if what you're doing is enough. I've read the Bible since I was a kid, but I still don't think I know God. I've memorized. I've gone on mission trips and retreats. I've cried my eyes out. But I still feel guilty about my past. I still can't forgive people who've hurt me and stabbed me in the back. 
So religion doesn't really work, does it? I mean, externally, it it looks like it's working really well because I'm at church every Sunday. You know, I go to bed by midnight. I'm not hanging out in that bar, you know, making a lot of noise. I'm a law-abiding citizen. It looks right from the outside, just like clean hands. Three times here, three times, two times. I don't have to do that again, right? So some people turn to religion. Some people, what do they do? They turn to relationships. Maybe I'm not a religious person. I don't go to church. You know, I, I, I don't need to be accepted by God. But we all inside have a desire and a need to be accepted by someone. So we work hard. We try to make a lot of money. Impress people with our degrees, our credentials. Because maybe then, maybe then I can give the woman of my dreams everything she's ever wanted and asked for. And if I give her everything she's ever wanted and more than enough of it, then she'll love me. And she'll never leave me. And as long as I'm bringing home the bacon and providing for her because I bust my butt at work, she'll never leave me. She'll love me. And if I get enough education and enough degrees, my parents, then they will say, well done, child. You are a a success and not a failure. So we study as hard as we can for as long as we can so that our parents will approve of what we've done with our lives. Or maybe it's in your professional circles or in your social circles. If you're able to make partner, Or maybe if you can cash out early with a big piece of the pie and go live on the beach while you're 40, everybody will say, look at him, look at her, she's a winner. What's the secret? How did you do it? We'll hang on every word you have to say. We'll read every tweet you tweet, every book you write. We respect you, we love you, we want it. Come on, and you're like, who who does things like that? Well, we all do. We read New York Times bestsellers. We stand in long lines to get autographs from people. We love them and adore them because they're successful and they're beautiful. And so deep down, we want to be successful and beautiful and loved. So we work hard. Maybe if I look, if I, if I lose enough weight, if my complexion is, is pure enough, if my eyes are big enough, if my body is in the right proportion, people will love me. So we turn to relationships and social networks because deep down, even though we might tell ourselves or the world might tell us that we're good, we we know that we're not quite good, but if we work hard, hard enough, we might be good enough. Or maybe that's not your cup of tea either. You're a hermit. You don't care about girls or guys. You don't go to church. Well, maybe you turn to politics. Yeah, if we could just organize society, we can eliminate illiteracy, poverty, war, racism, prejudice, all social injustice, all be gone. Guess what, people? We've been trying to do this for a thousand years. What happened in the last 100? World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Middle East, 9-11. Politics isn't working, is it? I mean, it, I'm not saying it's useless. It's great. It's wonderful. We need it for civil society. But if we depend on it to make our hearts clean so that at the end of the day we can have a pure conscience, we're going to fail, people. Just read the news. So what do we do? If it's not what we do that makes us unclean or clean, it's just the way that our heart is, what do we do with our hearts? What do we do with our hearts? Well, remember, this whole section is about purity and cleanliness, being pure before God and washing your hands and washing your pots and dishes and doing all these external things so that when God sees us, we'll be pure and acceptable and we can enter into the presence and he'll love us. 
Did you know that there was only one day out of the entire year where the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people? The Holy of Holies was in the temple of God. Outside of the Holy of Holies was the inner court. Outside the inner court was the outer court. And outside the outer court was the common area. Only the high priest was allowed to go from the common area to the outer court, to the inner court, and to the Holy of Holies. And he was only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And did you know that that day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on that day, seven days before, he would have to go into solitude and isolation? He would have to withdraw from the community and his family and from anyone that he would know, lest he accidentally bump into someone in the market who's dirty or defiled. Someone who had eaten bacon that morning, and he rubs up against him, well, now I've eaten bacon too. So for seven days before the Day of Atonement, he would isolate himself so that he wouldn't come in contact with anybody that was unclean. That's how serious these people were about cleanliness. And then, the night before he went into the Holy of Holies, he would bathe himself in pure, clean water, and then he would wear pure white linen, and he would put on incense and perfume, and then he would go into the Holy of Holies, and then he would sacrifice an animal to atone for his own sins, his own sins first, and then he would come out of the uh, Holy of Holies, outer court, inner court, and then he would go back home, then he would bathe himself again, And he would put on new linens, not the same linens that he was just wearing, but brand new white linens. And he would go back into the Holy of Holies. And now, after he's bathed twice and changed twice and atoned for his own sins, now he can atone for the sins of all the people. And the reason why I explain that is because that's how serious these people were about cleanliness. You think you're a hypochondriac, read the Old Testament. These people were all about no germs, no contamination. This is the way the priest would work. The priest had to be absolutely, impeccably, spotless and clean. No stain or wrinkle, no hint or trace of dirt or dust. No contact or rubbing shoulders with anybody in the community or the marketplace, lest he have to do it all over another seven days. That's how serious they were about purity. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet, a minor prophet named Zechariah, and he has a vision of Joshua, the high priest. Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah chapter 3, in this uh, prophecy, God showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, Joshua, the high priest, before the angel of the Lord, was what? Was dressed in pure white linen. No, I'm sorry. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. If you actually translate that down to the Hebrew, it's clothes that is filled with dung, the dirtiest clothes you could possibly wear. Contrast that to what the high priest had to do to come before the Holy of Holies, much less the angel of God. So is he in the right place at the right time? No, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He is... Filthy. He's not allowed to be there. Now, Satan can feast on him because, look, he doesn't deserve to be there because his external appearance is a reflection of his inward heart. He's filthy, and therefore he shouldn't be in the presence of the angel. So Satan should have plenty of evidence to condemn and accuse him and cast him to hell. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes.
Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. How many of you feel like Joshua today? You're at church and you know these songs coming out of your lips make you feel like a hypocrite because your heart is far. You still can't let loose from that sin 10 years ago, 8 years ago, 2 days ago. Just oppressing you, guilt-ridden. Where you just look at all of humanity and you say, we're all screwed. We're all going to go to hell. And the angel of the Lord says, take off his filthy clothes. I will take away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. But how? Why? Because in verse 8, Zechariah says, listen, I am going to bring my servant, the branch, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. See, you can't even get rid of your own sin, high priest. You've got to go through all these baths and, and, and perfume treatments and, and, and go to the dry cleaners twice and get clean clothes. But let me tell you something. I'm going to atone for everyone's sin right here, right now. And the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to send my servant, the branch, to do it. Who is the branch? What is the branch? Paul tells us the branch in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The branch is Jesus. The reason why Jesus now said all food is declared clean is because I am the fulfillment of all your purity laws. I am the servant that Zechariah talked about. All your junk, your mess, your sin, your depravity, your heart with all 13 of those things that come out in some way, shape, or form... Guess what? No more. I'm here. And I am going to give you my righteousness and my holiness and my purity. And guess what? You can take your crap and give it to me. And I'm going to take it to the cross and nail it there. And that's what it means to be clean. That's what it means to be a child of God. That's the gospel. We can't save ourselves. We're not good enough. You can try but you will fail. But Jesus was perfect. And God sent him to this earth for 33 years to show that he could uphold the law fully and fulfill every single one of those 613 commands. He was without sin. And at the end of his life, he took that perfect record and he said, now it's yours. Give me your crap. Give me your failed report card. Give me that crappy resume you think you're proud of. And let me give you mine. Now go. Worship God. This is the point of Mark Mark 7. This is the deepest need. Maybe you're going to just continue to be religious or you're going to just give yourself to that guy or that girl or your parents or your children. Or maybe you're just going to trust in the moral goodness of man. If we get together and put our heads together, we can figure this thing out. We can make a utopia if we try hard enough. But Jesus says, no, you can't. You're born this way. 
If you want to be right with God, you've got to trust in me to save you. Do you trust him? Do you believe that? Do you believe he can save you out of your sin, remove your guilt, remove your stain? I hope so. Uh, Let me pray for us, uh, Lord, as we have now come and taken this bread and this juice to remind us of what you have done for us, that you have taken your brokenness upon yourself so that we could have your wholeness, your shalom in exchange. That our hearts that are deceitful above all things can be made pure because you have given us a new heart, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Lord God, we thank you and we worship you and we respond to the invitation of what it means to know you, to love you, and to follow you for all of our days. And so, Lord God, we thank you and we lift up our hands and our voices and our hearts and our prayers. And we give you praise because you are worthy. We give you praise because you are glorious. We give you praise because you have saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.